Balls, 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 is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we were to ever find any. I, why don't al- you, I already don't want to listen to this show. Why don't anymore? you talk like that all the time? Does it sound awesome? Yeah, it was mur- awesome. Mur- it's not my voice. I could, I could hardly hear him. I feel like he needs to pump up the volume. Dance, dance, foreshadowing. This oh, week, I, I thought he was doing his ham radio voice. This week, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to get a little personal as we're each picking three movies that tell our life story. I feel like we're all going to be kind of on the therapist couch. <laughs> That's yeah, how this a lot feels. of tears. Well, I'm loud and proud. A lot of tears, a lot of swinging fists. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're fighting friends. <laughs> to kick us off, say your name and how many stars would Rebert, Roger Ebert, give the story of your life? My name is Hudson. I'm going to give it a solid three stars. I haven't like overcome any big adversity, but I've got some good drama. Kind of happening. Overcome, what are you talking you've about? had some adversity. Yeah, you've had a lot of adversity. Well, I mean, you know, I was, I'm, a, I'm a white male American. It's not like a... Oh, God. Here comes the political <laughs> speech. <laughs> My name is Jordan. I was going to say a solid two stars, but mm. I guess all stars are solid. No, you can have a half star. Yeah, you can throw a right. half in there. Oh, well, okay, sure. So still solid two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't right. think the texture it's, of the stars is oh, that, is that important. It? I've, Number I've two. only read like six Rebert reviews in my life, so I don't. I don't no, know. We've read you've more like, than that on this like, show. Yeah, you've yeah, mentioned. I, a lot I've more only than read this. them. No, no. I think you're thinking of me. Yeah, I'm the one. Who's I'm read Jordan. Oh, Jordan. Jordan sits over here. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'd find it fine. You know, I don't <laughs> think you'd be too offended or excited. Sure, Lance. Uh, this is Lance. I uh, he'd give me three stars, not because of anything great or bad about my life, but he just gave just about every movie three stars. That was just kind of an Ebert thing. Oh, yeah. If Drew Barrymore was in it, he'd bump it up like half a star. He really liked her. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Or Scorsese. If yeah, Scorsese directed, I'd get four stars immediately. Right. So if Scorsese directed well, your uh, life story and Drew Barrymore starred, uh, starred, as, starred the, as me, as you. Yeah, yeah. It would get four stars. <laughs> Unless it was called Color of Money. I'd watch that movie. This is Kyle the Gibbler Gibby. Gibson. <laughs> Gibbler. Gibbler. What are you gibbling? Whatever, Jordan. It doesn't matter. Gibbles and bits. I think Rebert. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to tell that joke for weeks. <laughs> I think Rebert would give me about two and a half stars. He'd say, "Oh, Gibby, come on! What it what it lacks in Cocky. adventure? And, <laughs> you gave yourself three stars. Mine's a star and, and a half lower. I thought you said three and a half. Star, no, I said two and a half. <laughs> oh, okay, sure. It's just half a star yeah. lower. What 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 it lacks in adventure and excitement? He said makes up for with drama and laughter. And I oh. think Rebert would get a few good laughs. I'm trying to think. Everybody Rebert else actually does. wrote that was very well. That was broken <laughs> out. <laughs> made that up. <laughs> he spoke in third person as well. Yeah. We asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter for movies that reflect the story of your own life. First, on Twitter. We have a Twitter account. It's at Fight About Film. Yeah. Isn't that what it is? You say that. I've never seen evidence of this. <laughs> 
Oh, it's out there. Oh, Just okay. follow us, guys. We do fun stuff. I'll do this first one. This is Kane Gibson, actually a uh, brother of yeah. one. Okay, Kyle the first Gibson. six times I read this document for tonight's episode, I read that Kanye Gibson. He's <laughs> <laughs> been called Kanye in it, his life. It's K-A-Y-N-E. Yeah, very similar. Okay, ready? Blue chips! Yeah! Definitely blue chips! And I was Neon Budo. 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 That's Shaq's character. Oh, his name, Neon Shaq's Budo. Blue chips? Neon Budo, yeah. What's I don't know what about? any of Blue those chips things is about are. About college basketball recruiting, recruiting, <laughs> recruiting, <laughs> recruiting in college basketball. It's a good uh, film. K- Kane thinks 90s. he's Shaq. Yeah, Kane. Kane has a lot of Shaq like tendencies. <laughs> it's large and well, Shaq like magic. Yeah, magic. I'm actually yeah. racking my brain to think of one thing they have in common. <laughs> they play basketball. Oh, okay. Kane's a better free throw shooter than Shaq. So, well, do they both like yeah, donuts? Really. Shaq likes donuts. Kane does like donuts, but Kane has lost. Good job, Kane. Lost about fifty pounds in the past year. So he <laughs> doesn't like donuts so much. Anymore. Wow. Okay. Right. Putting me to shame. All jerk. Right. We'll talk about that later. I'll do this one. This is Adam Williams. Yeah, Sister Act 2. Back in the habit. Transforming students' lives one Lauren Hill at a time. Lauren Hill is in that movie? Yeah. She huh. played the young singer. Really? Damn. I'm not sure what Adam has in common. Uh, maybe he's a teacher. I think he is. According to his Twitter bio, he's a. Oh, he's not a nun. Sort. We're he's proud of you. Proud of you, Adam. I, I think he has none in common with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. Clay mm-hmm. Jones. This is Clay Jones. Angus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is either. So that's. Well, Angus. You never saw Angus? I do know Sister Act 2. I have no idea what Angus is. I remember loving that movie. Uh, it's like for like middle school or something. I mean, I, they, I don't know if it holds up. Do no. they determine what's real? If huh. you want your favorites read on the show, you can leave your comments on Twitter. I don't know if you guys heard that we have a Twitter account oh, at wow. Fight About Film on Twitter yes. or on Facebook.com slash Fight About Film. All right, guys, how'd you guys decide on the story of your lives? Is this a, a thing that we need to talk about before we get into the stuff of our lives? This was hard. Yeah, you guys all said you had a hard time. I had a really hard time with this. This was the worst list of was the super whole Super easy. Well, no, what was strange episodes. was it's, it was hard for different reasons. Like, it started off difficult because I just I couldn't think of any movies. And then I went downstairs to my little movie room and I started browsing through and then I found a ton of movies. Oh, really? Yeah, so it kind of huh. went, it kind of went, kind of swung the, diff- the other direction. It was, it was strange. Hmm. Interesting. It was hard for me the whole time, except for my middle movie. That one I've known for months. I don't find very many characters personally relatable to my life. I don't uh, find very many characters similar to you either. Well, that's good. I don't think I've ever met anybody like you. Angus wow. was kind of like you. Oh, <laughs> what is normal? Yeah, Rick. Rick. Yeah, Rick. So I, yeah, it was real hard. I'm kind of with Jordan here. I didn't. I don't. I mean, I love movies. I love watching it. And there's things I can see in movies and myself in movies. But this was really difficult. And I ended up hating you because of this, Hudson. Thank you. This is totally your category and like Thanks. i got super angry and i was freaking out by a text <laughs> wow and we can probably see these texts uh, and i changed the movie so can the audience <laughs> yeah they're out there now i but deleted them i hated this one so i'm excited we're talking about it <laughs> so keep listening everyone <laughs> I, I loved it i think that i think this is a really great topic and I'm, I'm really excited to be talking about it i just had a really hard time finding examples that fit sure to my life and just something a little different and uh you know a little more personal than what we normally do so we'll, we'll see how it goes that's what's kind of odd about this one it was like I, I felt like my analysis of the movie was more about me than it was the movie yeah. in some oh, yeah. cases. Big time. I hope people find that interesting. Which is how uh, movies are sometimes. I guess so. I'm going to kick us off tonight by talking about The Mosquito Coast. This is a Harrison Ford movie released in 1986, directed by Peter Weir. The movie tells the story of Ali Fox, a successful and driven inventor who, after growing tired of the commercialism in the U.S., picks up his family and moves to the Mosquito Coast, a jungle area off of Nicaragua and Honduras. The film bears <laughs> Say that, say that again. Honduras. 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 They, just, they just met us. Honduras. But filmed in Belize, I believe. Belize. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> 
They just met Russ. I could keep doing this all night. This is great. So the film bears some extreme similarities to my own story when in 1987, a few months after this film was released, my father, a successful and driven pharmacist who, after growing tired of the commercialism in the U.S., packed up his family and moved to the country of Haiti to serve the poor in the mission field. Allie has two sons in the film, roughly the same distance apart as my brother and I, and there are scenes of the Fox children playing with the native kids that reminded me so much of my own childhood growing up in Haiti. Uh, where we all spoke the international language of play. While my father didn't go to quite the crazed lengths that Fox does in the film, the character reminded me so much of my dad, even resembling each other physically at times, and the two shared an outlook on life as well. In the film, Ali says, We eat when we're not hungry, drink when we're not thirsty, we buy what we don't need, and throw away everything that's useful. Why sell a man what he wants? Sell him what he doesn't need. Pretend he's got eight legs and two stomachs and money to burn. It's wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. And in my dad's letter, back from Haiti, he offers a similar, though more spiritual sentiment. He says, I often think back a few years ago and how my life centered around me. All those things that seem to really matter in the past have grown strangely dim. May the Lord forgive us for our waste. Our abundance is so often our downfall. Uh, When my dad put his mind to something, there was no stopping him, and I feel like it's something he's passed down to both my brother and I. He believed in his mission so much he was willing to give his life for it, and that's exactly what happened when he died in a car accident just seven months after we arrived. In the final line of the movie, uh, Ali's son, the narrator of the story, said, uh, Once I believed in my father, and the world had seemed small and old. Now he was gone, and I wasn't afraid to love him anymore, and the world seemed limitless. It's a bittersweet acceptance of his father, and a realization that his life is now in his own hands. And having grown up watching my own father take such a radical leap with his life and legacy, it has infected me with the same drive and optimism. The world is indeed limitless. By the way, this is the guy who says he's never really been through anything in his life. Yeah. Never, <laughs> never, never had any, at all. Never had any, yeah. So Hudson, I met you. Yeah, I remember I met you. You and I have been friends since sixth grade, I believe. Yeah. And I so I met you Dorks. a couple years after <laughs> after that happened. After That's your, right. After yeah, your dad yeah. passed away. And I remember that was like my biggest fear growing up was losing my dad. Yeah. And so that I remember meeting you and being like, <laughs> Sorry, Whoa. his mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <it's laughs> I think, well, I, so regarding the film itself, yeah. P- Peter Weir uh, was the director, director incredible director. Yeah. And he's kind of made a, a career out of telling these man goes against the grain stories. And he's so good at them. And he's kind of told the same story over and over again, but from mm-hmm. very different angles. This one in particular, I remember because it's a man going against the grain in a way that's really disturbing. And almost from the very beginning, it's like you get that there's something kind of loose with him. Yeah. 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 Something's, he's not entirely admirable. He says and does things that are very admirable, yeah. but then he takes it to an extreme where you see what this man is doing to himself and his family. And I remember this This film really bothered me as a kid yeah. when I saw it. Such a great role for an actor, though. And I, I, I was reading that this is actually Harrison Ford's favorite role of his, which yeah. I thought when you look at the roles he's played, that's 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 yeah. pretty high praise. I think you can understand why, because it's so against what he normally plays. He's not. He's yeah. a total anti-hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, all, but at the same time, as kind of crazy as he is, he is going after something noble. And, yep. he's, and it's, it's making a really strong statement about the world. Yeah. Do you see parallels with your dad and his obsessiveness or was this, or was that not really part of it for you? It's more the drive. I mean, o- obsession is such a strong word that it, it's hard for me to say as a kid if that was some, a part of my dad's life. But I know that when my dad committed to something, he put all of his energy towards it in the same way that Allie does in this film. You know, obviously there's there's some major differences here. The, the biggest part being Allie was very anti kind of the, the missionaries in here, which to be fair, the missionaries are pretty off in this film as well, whereas my dad was a very spiritual guy and that was the entire reason 
option of, of going overseas. So there are a lot of differences there, but I found myself endeared more to Harrison Ford in this, even during those crazy times, because I felt like I could relate to it in some way. Would you would you almost say you, your dad was like the Harrison Ford character if he'd done it healthier? Right. If he'd yeah, done exactly. it kind of the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I found that the tension between Harrison Ford's characters, like staunch uh, anti-religious feelings and and then the, how kind of goofy the missionary right, was, yeah, yeah. which originally was off-putting. And I thought, Peter Weir's really not framing this in a fair way. He's making this missionary so goofy. But then I felt like the point that he was making was that Harrison Ford's character wasn't any better. Right. right like he yeah. was just as zealous and, and, and upsetting to the environment that he was going into. Right. Jordan, number three. I didn't realize tonight was going to be so Rebert-centric, but I'm going to let Rebert tease my first pick here from when he and Siskel covered this movie on their show back in 1989. Our next movie is a real weirdo, one of the strangest, most depraved, certainly most depressing movies I've ever seen. How do you like that? I can hear intro. him saying wow. that. I can, yeah. yeah. Well, you just heard him say it. Yeah. Just say yeah. It. yeah. I just heard him say it. <laughs> That's what you just said. Uh, <laughs> Okay. They don't make movies about childhoods like mine. It would probably just be a snooze fest. That's not to say that my childhood was boring, far from it. But you'd really have to search for any dramatic material. It was idyllic, suburban, middle class, white, Protestant heaven. We had a cul-de-sac for games and block parties, a wonderful church, not too big, not too small, with spaghetti dinners on Wednesday nights. Frankly, it was perfect. But I'll let Rebert continue. It's called Parents. And it takes place in the 1950s in a typical American suburb where a quiet little boy begins to hate and fear his parents because he feels that they're keeping some very unpleasant secrets from him. For example, what about those enormous choice cuts of prime meat on the table every night? Where do they come from? We have leftovers every day since we moved here. I'd like to know what they were before they were leftovers. Not before that, they were leftovers to be. Now, I didn't hate or fear my parents, and they certainly weren't feeding me human body parts for dinner. <laughs> but really, nothing in this movie is similar to my childhood, except for one thing, the boy's imagination and the fear and fascination that goes with it. Michael is plagued by nightmares, of which I also had many. And often his nocturnal fears stem from an underlying fear of the adult world and what his parents were up to after they said goodnight to me. Not what his parents said goodnight to me, but my parents <laughs> said goodnight to me. I can remember as a kid lying in bed, unable to sleep, and I could hear my parents talking in the living room, but I couldn't actually make out any of the words they were saying. I was convinced during those dark hours of the night that my parents were hatching ways to kill me. These fears immediately dissipated and were forgotten when I would wake up and the sun was rising or when mom would come in to comfort me. I was never actually afraid of them, but in the dark where my imagination could bloom and grow, it was absolutely truth and I was just a powerless child. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. You thought your parents were trying to kill you? I thought that they were like sitting in the living room talking about ways to kill me. It's hard to explain because like lying in bed, that's what I thought. But like during the day, I, I never huh. thought that. So it's your equivalent of like monsters under the bed. Yeah. yeah. Your monsters being your parents trying to murder. And Who then ceased <laughs> exactly. to be monsters when the yeah. sun came up. Yeah. Huh. Like vampires. It was just something for my yeah. imagination. A spring. They were a springboard for my imagination. Were you too. like enjoying this kind of morbid fantasy? No. It was ter- you were actually terrified. Yes. Gotcha. But this but, wasn't fed by anything because you no. grew up on old black and white movies and right. No, and, it wasn't and pure safety. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it, it there were really no grounds for it other than just where my mind naturally goes. I mean, my mom was reading like Frank Peretti books. <laughs> That that wouldn't explain it. (laughs) Pro-cannibalism, that Frank Peretti. Oh, well. There's something magical about the dark. At the beginning of Parents, the dad, played by a terrifying Randy Quaid, makes a failed attempt at explaining the darkness away. You're not scared of your room, are you? Michael, the cellar's dark. 
everything's dark at night. And frankly, I'm still afraid of the dark. And my imagination still sometimes gets the best of me. But nothing like when I was a kid. Gibby's over there giggling at the fact that I'm still afraid of the dark. <laughs> no, I was just imagining like doing this podcast in the dark. How awesome that would be. And Jordan's like terrified. Well, I wouldn't be because you guys Why would, would be that here. be awesome? <laughs> we, we couldn't see it. That would be terrible. Okay. I'm just going to keep. We couldn't see our notes. <laughs> we couldn't talking. see the clock. I don't have a comment annoyed enough to deal with what you just said to me. <laughs> <laughs> like my lexicon has hit its limits as crazy as it sounds the wacky grotesque super fun insanity of parents isn't all that far off from where my imagination would go in those dark hours of the night in the mid to late 80s it's almost like director bob balaban simply captured one of my childhood nightmares and put it on the screen hmm. we talk about this movie but you none of you guys watched it uh, i have yeah. seen the poster and the, the vhs cassette in our video store great and it always freaked me out because there was a head in the that's funny. That's what I remember. Yeah. yeah, as soon as I saw the cover of this, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I walked by that all the time. Yeah. Like, well, that's a movie I'll never be allowed to see. Walked right by that yeah. all the time. It was in that, like, forbidden yeah. area. Is it yeah. funny? It's very funny. It's Bob Balaban. I like, I like Bob Balaban. He's got a good sense of humor. What else is Bob Balaban? Uh, you guys may remember that he did My Boyfriend's Back from, from last, last week's episode. Oh. Yeah. Fun name to say, too. And he's also in... Waiting for Guffman, which we talked about two or three weeks A lot of and a lot of Wes Anderson movies. It's a really fun movie. It's super campy. I mean, yeah. it's it's ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun. And it hits this weird tone that most movies are unable to hit. And so it's a lot Was of fun. Mary Beth Hurt the official mom of like <laughs> low budget 80s movies? She was, she was always. Yeah, I went and looked at, at <laughs> her filmography and everything was Mrs. Blah, Mrs. Blah, Mrs. She wanted to play mothers after William Hurt dumped her. Was she married to Bill Hurt? She was. All right. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm glad we could have such a stimulating conversation <laughs> about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> is there yeah, something about cool. this movie though that feel like I'm looking at like Randy Quaid on that poster and it feels off for some reason like I feel like he was I, I'm just saying looking at the movie it looks like it's kind of I'm not trying to rip the movie no. but it looks kind of like a little lowbrow and oh. Randy Quaid at that point was kind of a established comic yeah does but, he seem out of place in it at all no. or does it, it fit oh I think it fits it's I really mean, campy Bob, Bob right? Bellman is so good at creating this super weird tone and vibe in it that it, it works hmm. it's a real nutty movie speaking of weird Randy Quaid what happened to that dude huh? <laughs> yeah it went off the reservation <laughs> went <please>. nuts <laughs> but it, it's, and it's hard to watch this movie without thinking of and seeing him without thinking of that yeah the crazy yeah. bearded dude yeah but people should watch it not you guys hear that people so like randy quaid has a brother dennis i have a brother named kane who we mentioned earlier in the episode good Just point Gibby. Let you guys know wow what isn't that f- f- Gibby? <laughs> That, that hey, segment was done. Lance, number three. This is going to be kind of a serious segment, which will sound odd given that the movie I will be talking about is Office Space, the 1999 Mike Judge film, a comedy that tells the story of three co-workers who hate their mundane corporate jobs and decide to embark on a scheme to rob the company. It did very poorly at the box office for reasons I still don't understand. Hudson and I saw it at the theater. Yeah, cool. No one gives oh. a f- but cool. Hey, thanks for adding Just your kidding, $14 yeah. to yeah. That. I can't believe this movie cost $10 million. Yeah, I thought it was super about. low budget. Maybe no, Jennifer Aniston cost that much. I don't think she did at that point. I think yeah, she was still fairly not. But no, anyway. Is, they destroyed a lot of office stuff. That's expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the movie bombs at the box office. It comes out the next year on video and just exploded. Its profitability was a shock even to the studio, where the then head of Fox's home release division was informed of it during an interview with Entertainment Weekly and didn't even know what the dollar <laughs> receipts were. That's hilarious. Wow. Yeah. Gibby, do you remember that? from? Which yeah, that was a good, that was that a good issue. Yeah? Yeah, they talked about Buffy, probably. <laughs> <laughs> 
as they oft did. Yeah. I was really impressed until you said probably. <laughs> Office Space is instantly quotable. TPS reports, the stapler, talking about your flair. I hear people reference this movie so often, it's it's amazing. So what I, here's what I need to say at this point. I'm going to frame this. There's an interview Dustin Hoffman did about his role in the legendary comedy Tootsie, about a man who dresses a woman. And he talks about how the role meant more to him because it ch- caused him to come to terms with his mistreatment of women and how he judged them on superficial standards. And in the interview, he starts weeping and he says, that was never a comedy to me. As I've gotten older, office space has stopped being a comedy to me. I started working in corporate America within a few months of graduating college back in 2001. I've been there for 17 years now, and it has defined and changed me in a very negative way. I don't think it's a healthy place. I think it's inhumane at times, and I think it is, and you guys are going to laugh at me because I know I sound melodramatic here, but it is a major problem problem in American society, the impact that corporate culture has had on it. Nobody's laughing. Okay, good. Yeah, nodding our heads. Yep. It literally ruins people's lives, and I've witnessed it firsthand, not even just at my own company, but just dealing with it everywhere. I have seen and had friends I work with die from what I believe is the stress they're put under. That's the extreme version, but depression and hurt and anger are rampant in corporate America, and it's disturbing as hell, and no one talks about it. And as funny a film as Office Space is, and as much as I'm probably taking it way too seriously, it's the only film I've ever seen try to deal with this reality. And as I watch it, I just sit there nodding my head going, yep. Yep, seen that, seen that, Mm. seen that. Um, The main character, Peter, starts the film so depressed from being in corporate America that he's in therapy, and he tells his therapist... So I was sitting in my cubicle today, and I realized ever since I started working, um, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. And people laugh at that, but that's real. People have to go to therapy because of their office jobs. Mm -hmm. I may be one of them. Mm. What this movie does is it raises an interesting question, which why do people stay in corporate America when it makes them miserable? And the reason for me, at at least, is an addiction to stability and security. You get addicted to the routine of it, and it's an incredibly powerful addiction that sucks so many people in our culture into it. American culture has been extremely successful economically. When you compare us to Europe, you see that European countries are not nearly as well off as we are monetarily, but they have something we've lost, which is a work-life balance and happiness outside of work. So again, I'm getting way too melodramatic here. I know that, but I've always been really appreciative of this film in a weird kind of way for sort of exposing and dealing with an issue that has been a major issue in my life and that I feel like is constantly getting swept under the rug. Yeah, I think Mike Judge would love to hear you talk about it in those terms because you can tell that he's... He's clearly come out of these situations. I mean, you can't write a movie like that without being in it. You right, know yeah. what I mean? It's so well written. It's a surprisingly tight script yeah. for a pretty goofy comedy. It's yeah. a, it, it is a heartbreaking film to me. I mean, I, I know that sounds stupid. And I laugh. I don't want to make it sound like I'm just weeping when I watch it. But like, I just, I see so many of the scenes, him in the therapist's office, you know, the scenes of people terrified of losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is just a culture of fear yeah. and it, it is a nightmare to be in. A lot of the time, I've I've had it kind of easy in a lot of ways compared to some other people. You're the CEO. I mean, that, <laughs> no. you, didn't, you didn't say that. No, but I mean, I've been generally well treated. I've been able to kind of climb a certain ladder. I mean, I've been able to do a lot of things that a lot of people haven't had the opportunity to do. It is an area of our culture that, again, I I, I saw one documentary once that, that dealt with this. That it was about workplace violence, and it talked about why postal workers were going crazy for a while. I think mm-hmm. it was back in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. and it talks about the unintended 
pressure that's just laid out on people that is so unnatural and so harmful and dangerous to people and what it does to them psychologically. And it talks about how workplace violence will continue to happen until someone takes a step back and goes, is this worth it? Is it worth driving people like cattle to turn a little bit extra profit? And that's what happens. I mean, that, that's totally normal. People are treated like numbers. People are treated for what they can produce, which again, I, I, I'm not trying to completely demonize it. I get it to a certain extent, but... There's another side of it that people don't discuss enough. There's always a running joke with people about like in corporate America, like if I win the lottery, I'm and that right there tells you how miserable people right. are. Right. Like they're they're constantly well, like and how difficult it is to get out of it. Like it requires and how the difficult lottery. it right. is to win the lottery. <laughs> yeah, that's the big takeaway from that. <laughs> <laughs> On a slightly lighter note, there is one joke in this movie that I love so much that's so quiet and subtle, and it's it's when the Bobs are going through uh, their papers of who they're going to fire, and they come up upon one of the three guys that the movie's about, mm -hmm. whose name I can't remember, but he's a Indian or Pakistani guy. One of the Bobs is saying, First, Mr. Samir not going to work here anymore anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and and see, it's that's, amazing. And it, it's hilarious, but it's also how people look at people. Right. People right. become name, names on lists. Right. Uh, cells in a spreadsheet and they're just tossed aside. This is a hilarious movie and I, I think if we did a, another comedy episode it would be a good one to cover because we could hit it from a really different angle yeah. but yeah. for me in terms of my life and where I approach this film there's a lot in it that's not funny at all. So, mm. I mean, it, space. it didn't feel funny at yeah. all. No, that, that was a, talking about it. That was a harsh eight minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Office know. Space, check it out. Yeah, horror movie. Gibby, number three. I picked my three movies that kind of delineated part of my life. Delineated? What? Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> one's about... Gibby, I love how you always choose, intentionally <laughs> choose incredibly <laughs> difficult words to say. I didn't even write that word down. I just I don't, I'm not even sure I would pronounce that right. Delineated. I think you delineated. did just I come up I with that word. And I'm smartest. <laughs> Delinean? Delinean. I, I said it right, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Delinean. Delinean. Yep. Three parts of my life. Childhood, adulthood, and then kind of now. Oh. So we'll start with the childhood. And no movie really encapsulates what I went through as a child, more so than my number three pick, which is The Black Stallion. You guys remember when I was shipwrecked and bonded with joke. a wild horse? <laughs> this is, this every, is, is every, every episode now. <clears throat> I got, nope, I got I two more. I got two more, guys. Great. Uh <laughs> The actual film is a 2011 J.J. Abrams movie, Super 8. Oh, yeah, man, that 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 alien attack, I think it impacted all of us in our childhoods. Yeah, it did. I mean, it, it it was a force on my life, actually. I mean, I can't go to sleep without wondering about if an alien is going to yeah. show up. Yeah, let's get to the real reason. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so it follows young teenager Joe Lamb. He's a shy, quiet kid whose outlet is making movies with his goofy friends. I mean, Joe has also recently just lost his mother in a terrible accident. I mean, he didn't actually lose her. He knows where she is. She's in the grave. She died. <laughs> wow. Zing? No, not, no, no. So the story picks up just after her death as he's had to forge a relationship with his father who's always been around, been a good father, but doesn't really understand his sensitive son. His son doesn't understand Too his busy dad. coaching the Panthers. Yep. He's too busy coaching the Dylan Panthers. Uh, Joe mostly hangs out with his friends and makes movies on a Super 8 camera. And the boys are all filming a movie one night, catch a spectacularly crazy train wreck, and then weird things start happening in town. They found out an unidentified creature was on train army comes to capture protected town that's not the part that i identify with jordan that's good I, i've never actually even seen a train wreck there's two parts of this film that just sort of i, I did identify with one is i know i've mentioned it before and i don't want to sound like that annoying contestant on the voice or american idol who keeps bringing up childhood trauma but my mother died in a car accident when i was 12 years old that kind of thing sticks with you and so in super eight joe's around the same age that i was and these are pretty transformative time in a young 
boy's life. That part stuck with me as did the forging of a new and different and better relationship with the father. And there's a scene at the end of the film where Joe has to let go of something of his mom. It's taken me years to let go myself. And it's just, I mean, I didn't have a little locket that had a picture in it, but that part at the end just really leaves me a metaphor. In a, yeah, a metaphor. Mm. That part at the end just gets me. Yeah. And then the other part that I identify with is the teenage boys using their creative outlet. <laughs> <laughs> that took a turn. <laughs> I was going to finish that sentence. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they're Please. using their creative outlet by making movies because that's what I did in high school with two of the three guys at this table. Jordan, you were probably like in kindergarten at yep. the time. Nope, not even born yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Playing in punk rock bands in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <clears throat> and, and there's scenes in this film where they're coming up with the movie they make and, and then making it and each friend has their own specific role and uh, it's just really fun and brings me back to being in high school and make a movie with you guys and mm. some great times in my life. Yeah, that's something this movie really captures well is that group of friends and the making of movies and just what that was like. I mean, we, we did it in high school, which were like way older oh, than these so kids. Lame. I don't know if that's lamer or cooler, but um, not cooler. <laughs> <laughs> and just how much fun that was and what a kind of, I mean, it'll sound lame, but like a real bonding experience that was for us of like creating something together in that time and not talking to girls so much. Yeah. But. yeah, we didn't have a female in any of our movies. Great. Like they did. Comes that. Yeah. Uh, this is one of my favorite first acts in any movie ever. I agree. It is. It is so awesome. It is. It gets me so pumped up. Yeah, we'll just end the. We'll end it there. Yeah. All and right. Then next I turn movie. It off and it's great. <laughs> you and I have the same issue with this movie, Jordan. Which I think you and I have the same issue with all J.J. Abrams. J.J. Yes. Abrams doesn't know how to end a movie. It'd be cool if he learned he, how. He doesn't know how to does middle or end a movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in sucks, but I have to say this: I love the nostalgia of this film i think anybody our age who watches it immediately identifies and falls in love with that even if you weren't like a kid running around making movies it captures and it was meant to capture that steven spielberg amblin yeah. era of the yeah. late 70s early 80s if only i it. was y'all's age i might you understand. remember it you remember it you're not that young but i loved that i love this movie all the way through and i mean the ending does get a little too, bit Gibby. special effecty but it's it's very i think very emotional and powerful at the very end yep that's super right. eight that's right, it is. It's a Not s- a hotel. <laughs> it is. I mean, it is a hotel. It is, it is that. Yeah. Uh, and if you're staying at a Super 8 this weekend, if you use <laughs> coupon code <laughs> FFFAF. <laughs> we have a Twitter. <laughs> My next film is Pump Up the Volume. Dance, dance. 1990 film. Uh, tells the story of Mark, played by Christian Slater, a painfully shy and lonely high schooler who moves to California from the East Coast. He doesn't fit in. He eats lunch alone, reading books in the stairwell. And after his parents get him a shortwave radio in order to keep in touch with his friends back East, well, I'll let him explain it. He says, My dumb dad got me the shortwave radio set so I could just talk to my buddies back East, but I couldn't reach anybody. So I just imagined I was talking to nobody. I imagined nobody listening. Maybe I imagined there would be one person out there. And then one day I woke up and I realized I was never going to be normal. And I said, F*** it. I said, so be it. And Happy Harry Hardon was born. So Mark starts his own pirate radio program, broadcasting into the darkness as the alter ego Happy Harry Hardon. But soon it catches on with teens in the area and he becomes a, a voice for the voiceless. Now I'm going to pump up the volume. <laughs> yeah. Jack Nicholson? Yeah, that's the same. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's constantly doing well, an impersonation. Pump up the volume. <laughs> he says in one of his many speeches in this film, Consider the life of a teenager. You have parents and teachers telling you what to do. You have movies, magazines, and TV telling you what to do. But you know what you have to do. Huh? Your job, your purpose is to get accepted, get a cute girlfriend, to think up something great to do for the rest of your life. What if you're confused and can't imagine a career? What if you're funny looking and you can't get a girlfriend? 
See, no one wants to hear it. But the terrible secret is that being young is sometimes less fun than being dead. But after a young man kills himself, the school and the FCC attempt to shut him down, and he begins an all-out battle for free speech. I first saw this movie in the 7th or 8th grade, and it immediately became my favorite movie. I felt like I was seeing myself on screen for the first time. I, too, was painfully shy. I couldn't talk to girls. After school, I would disappear into comic books and TV and music. But as I began writing, I began to discover my voice, that I could still have something to say, even if no one was listening. For me, it wasn't about pirate radio, but creative writing. And there was healing in that. A feeling like you were being heard. Um, and there's an honesty in Mark's words in, in this film that were just not in teen movies of the time. I mean, maybe The Breakfast Club is another example that just felt like real people on screen, but I, I feel like Pump of the Volume takes it even to another level. The movie is very 90s, but so were my middle school years. It's completely irreverent, it's inspirational, it's challenging, and unlike so many other high school movies of the time, it has something to say. Um, I'll leave you with one last quote from Mark. He says, We're all worried. We're all in pain. That just, that comes with having eyes and with having ears. But just remember one thing. It can't get any worse. It can only get better. I mean, high school is the bottom. Being a teenager sucks, but that's the point. Surviving it is the whole point. Quitting is not going to make you strong. Living will. So just hang on and hang in there. I wonder what happened to this guy when he got into corporate America and they saw how bad it really sucks. <laughs> yeah, high yeah, school they made was, a sequel. It's called Office Space. <laughs> high school was like a major high point in my life. That, I think, you know, and this is the thing. I think that this is a film that is very dependent on what kind of high school experience you have. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, really. Yeah. Like, no, I, I think, I, I think er, there is total validity to everything you're saying. I mean, for yeah. a lot of kids, this is something they identified heavily with. And I, I didn't have like, I wasn't, I was far from cool when I was like in middle school and high school. Look at you now. <laughs> now look at me. But I, I think one of the hard things I, I I have with this movie is like I, I didn't I just I can't relate to it I didn't understand what they were so upset about and, and when they just they were having angst they were like going crazy yeah like people were going insane in this movie and I was like it's it's okay like just, <laughs> just get an A on your test <laughs> or B just yeah, study harder B. guys that, yeah. big, that won't even matter <laughs> yeah just get yourself a cute girl and get, no I'm just kidding <laughs> No, but I mean, it, it's, it deals with an angst that I don't think, I, I just, I never had to that level. So when I watched this film again a couple of years ago, I just, I, it was kind of, I mean, no offense, but it was kind of sure. silly to me. Yeah. At the same time, I have to recognize that it meets people at different places. Funniest scene in the movie to me is, you already know what I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah. probably, when they, they have this big rebellion or something and they it's run like out with this giant, school, yeah. uh, like paper mache penis yeah. and you don't know where they got it from. <laughs> Like they were just giant penises <laughs> laying around. You kind of don't make those things in secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in the middle of the cafeteria. It's like they've been working paper. on it for years, and this was their big shot. To uh, it's just, bring a, it it's just the number one yeah. principle. They had it laying around. It's got a terrible title for the movie, so don't take it by that. Well, yeah. I, I felt like I was missold because I'm a, a really big Technotronic fan. So I did wonder if a lot of kids tried to <laughs> like. <laughs> I wonder if a lot of kids tried to emulate this, like start their own little. Oh, radio absolutely. Station. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. The kind of technology around it is obviously going to come across yeah. really dumb to any kid today but I feel like the kind of same sentiment applies and uh, I'm curious what that's like for teenagers today. I did also think it was kind of funny that this kid became the entire law enforcement's number <laughs> number one issue. Like yeah. there was there were no greater crimes going on than a kid with a ham radio. Like They uh, should have been well, worried I mean, about those giant paper penises. I know. Those <laughs> yeah. are dangerous. Put an eye out. There were a lot of things <laughs> happening at the school that were legal issues that they were blaming him for whether he was responsible uh, for them or not. Okay. But mm. yeah. 
pop up the volume. <laughs> Jordan, number two. As a young man, I was completely obsessed with a short-lived rock and roll phenomenon from the early 1970s. One that... <laughs> Yep. I hate the 70s. Take that, Jordan's life story. <laughs> One that would be morphed and corrupted and mutated into the hair metal of the 1980s, oddly enough. It was called glam rock. It wasn't just David Bowie, Iggy Pop, T-Rex, Roxy Music, and Lou Reed. It was Silverhead and Brian Eno and Sparks and Joe Bryath and Gary Glitter. I've never heard of half of these. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think you had. Brian Eno, he worked with you too. No, that one. Yes, he, he did. Some of his worst work. awesome work. <laughs> Glitter Gary Sparks, he was a character at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one. <laughs> it was boys in women's clothes and makeup. Everything shiny and dangerous, elaborate and alien. As I've probably said before, I grew up in the hardcore punk scene, a scene with no shortage of bold masculinity. So naturally, as my taste began to grow and change, as I searched for my next great musical love, it was glam that stepped in line. What a world I had found, with so much to explore. Well, my starship doesn't want man, and neither does his love. Glad I caught you on my view screen. It appears today's youngsters have fashioned a whole new bent on the so-called sexual liberation of the flower power set. The long hair and love beads have given way to glitter makeup, platform shoes, and a whole new taste for glamour, nostalgia, and just plain outrageousness. Is London not shocked? London is improving. Well, I think it's a disgrace. Parading around all ponced up like a pack of bleeding woofters. My second movie is a celebration, a cut-up collage homage to the glam era, Velvet Goldmine, from 1998, directed by Todd Haynes. I should hate this movie. It takes music I love, that has great personal meaning to me, and has actors recreating it and mixing it all up, but Todd Haynes is a masterful filmmaker, and Velvet Goldmine is a love letter, not an opportunist exploitation. Haynes' deep appreciation and passion for the subject is clearly evident. I've heard this movie described as more of a painting than a movie. I don't think I disagree. Haynes weaves the scenes together seamlessly. It's a stunningly beautiful and adventurous film. Can I ask you a question real quick? Of course. Are you talking about Wonderstruck, the 2017 film? Because that's what Gibby's looking at. <laughs> it's directed by Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes is a very acclaimed filmmaker. I was just curious. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Uh, Jordan, this is a fictional film? It is, but it's I wasn't based, clear about that too. It, it's absolutely fictional, but it draws... Very real inspiration from real life events, and they use real music. I mean, like actual some, music from the time. Some of the music is from the time. Some um, of it's original. He wanted to use Bowie's music, but Bowie wouldn't let him. Mm. So there are you can't use my music. Nearly all the music from the time is recreated for this movie by I current, see, pulp, current musicians. Pulp did a Jarvis Cocker song. Well, Jarvis Cocker is the Hi, singer of Pulp. So. That's why Pulp did it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, most of their songs are by Jarvis Cocker. I think I was thinking of Joe Cocker. Yeah, not the same guy. Much of the movie, and glam in general, is about sexual liberation and exploration. As a guy brought up in the sexually repressive environment of evangelicalism, oh, is here, that a word? Here he goes. This was just, yeah, here I go, if you let me go. <laughs> this was just the kind of danger I was looking for. But it wasn't about the act of sex. I was still years away from that. It was about identity and role reversals and culture. I was 15 when I bought my first pair of women's pants. I wore a silk. <laughs> Silver sequin tailed tuxedo <laughs> with homemade sparkling platform shoes and hot pink star shaped glasses to my senior prom. God, how are we friends? <laughs> we wouldn't have been then. <laughs> <laughs> then I grew my hair out, dressed in all kinds of women's clothes, studied fashion design. <laughs> 
I thought, and you, and for some reason I thought you were about to go into martial arts. Studied the no. way of the sword. <laughs> I didn't do that. I regularly went to drag shows, and I carried a pink nylon purse everywhere I went. I was even physically threatened by some good old boys at a county fair after a male friend of mine kissed me in the line for the whirly gig. It was absolutely terrifying, but also strangely exhilarating. Glam had died out 25 years before, but I wanted to bring that spirit back. I wanted to find myself in it. I spent many nights in my freshman dorm working on my GeoCities website. I called it <laughs> Neo-Glam. It was a manifesto of style and substance. Luckily, no trace of it can be found today. <laughs> I still worship the original glam music, but also pushed a then-current movement, bands like Pulp and the London Suede. So after college, I went on to play rock and roll and tarp myself up as much as I could get away with. Highly influenced by yet another band briefly painted into the Velvet Goldmine cyclorama, the New York Dolls. This sort of thing went on well into my 20s. The experimentation, the fight against norms, and the partying, the decadence, the pursuit of the rock and roll dream. A mission to change the world, much like Ewan McGregor's character, a mashup of Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, says near the end of the film, We set out to change the world. Ended up just changing ourselves. What's wrong with that? You don't look at the world. So to address the elephant in the room, yes, Velvet Goldmine is very much about gay culture, gay identity, and homosexuality. Much of it kicked off in a scene where Brian Slade, the glam superstar of the film, comes out at a press conference, much like David Bowie did in interviews with both Melody Maker and Playboy at the time. What about your fans? Aren't they likely to get the, uh, the wrong impression? <laughs> and which wrong impression is that? Well, you're a blinking fruit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, sir, no. It doesn't concern me in the least. I should think that if people were to get the wrong impression of me, the one to which you so eloquently referred, it wouldn't be the wrong impression. Everybody knows most people are bisexual. Any more questions? I was... Uh, yeah, woman with the beret. I was under the impression that you were married and living in North London. I am married, quite happily, in fact. I just happen to like boys as much as I like girls, and seems as my wife feels pretty much the same about such things. I should think we've been able to make a fairly decent go of it so far. Am I gay? Or was I in my early 20s? The short answer is no. But at the time, I really didn't know what it would feel like to be gay or bisexual. So I didn't know. I knew I loved the culture and the product. And a part of me really wanted to find out that I was gay. Finally, an identity other than just weirdo. Alas, despite my beliefs of sexual fluidity and grayscale, I wasn't actually gay. Just a weirdo. Just a weirdo. Just a weirdo. Sorry, George. <laughs> but it didn't change my love for glam. And no film has ever come as close to portraying that love than Velvet Goldmine. I read the trivia to this, which I often do when I haven't actually watched them, which I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry because I really wanted to. And yeah. I, this, I love this fact. When Christian Bale and Ewan McGregor were filming their sex scene, <laughs> comma, the director cut without letting them know. So the two continued to simulate the act <laughs> until they realized the trick that had been played on them. Zoinks! Yeah. Yeah. Do you think he got like good. Terminator Salvation mad after that cut? Christian Bale? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the poster of this and uh, Ewan McGregor is looking pretty glam. Jonathan Myers, you barely recognize him, looks very feminine. Yeah. Christian Bell looks like he stepped off the set of Newsies. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jonathan Rice Myers looks like Hillary Swank. Yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, he kind of had <laughs> really? just stepped off really? Newsies a little. I mean, not really. He's been a number young, of years. Yeah. But, um, but he's st he was still young and not not yeah. all that famous. Does he talk like Batman in this? He doesn't talk at all like Batman. <laughs> We're going to the Velvet Gold Mine. <laughs> 
Anyway, I, I want to thank you guys for being willing to meet me here at this movie and discuss it with me mm-hmm. and really just dive into what this has meant in my life. Huh. We support you, Jordan, 100%, no matter what you choose. That's Yeah, no matter which direction you go. No matter point. which movies you pick. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's actually really interesting to hear you say all that. It sounded know. very genuine. <laughs> no, it, it, it is. I didn't know all that. I didn't know you were such a little... <laughs> wow. Oh, Lance, number two. Thanks, Hudson. There it is, Wendy. Second star to the right and straight on till morning. My next film is Peter Pan, the 1953 Disney classic, directed by a bunch of guys you've never heard of, but we'll just say Disney directed it. (laughs) Based on the novel by J.M. Barry, we follow our hero Peter Pan, the boy who refuses to grow up as he whisks away the children of the Darling family, Wendy, John, and Michael, taking them to Neverland to meet his gang, the Lost Boys, his feisty sidekick Tinkerbell, and do battle with his nemesis Captain Hook. So this is not my favorite Disney movie, but it's one that epitomizes what makes Disney movies so special, and it's always been among my personal favorites. It hits on so many themes we see run through Disney movies, the child-parent relationship, the role of magic in our lives, escapism, and most of all, what it means to grow up and stop being a child. And that's a theme that's always hit home with me, is it's something I've always struggled with. That line between childhood and adulthood, when you cross it, when it's okay to be a kid, when you have to be an adult, and that longing or even aching for the simplicity of childhood and how badly I think all adults at some level miss it. There's a moment at the end of the film where Mr. Darling sees Captain Hook's pirate ship floating away back to Neverland, and he says, you know, I have the strangest feeling that I've seen that ship before, a long time ago when I was very young. And this is such a critical moment because it's a reminder that the kid never goes away. He or she is always still in there somewhere and for some, it's a more difficult struggle to suppress that part of you and to live in a culture that seems to be constantly telling you to grow up and mature and stop acting like a child. But there's another reason I picked this film. I have a very strange relationship with not only Disney movies, but with the Disney company as a whole. Years ago, I worked there. I was that obnoxious guy who just had tons of Disney stuff and never grew out of it the way so many others did. So much you, what you mean is that you opened your own Disney store at the the local <laughs> mall. No, no Jordan. Kiosk. No, Jordan. That's not what I meant at all. You've made a horrible error. Oh, sorry. The, the company created a palpable magic to me. My first two weeks on the job, I went to the parks every single night, and it was complete bliss. I was there on an internship, and after that internship ended, I tried later on to get a full-time job there, more than once, and it never worked out. And it was a very devastating thing for me. It will sound really odd, but it felt like Disney, that thing I love so much, kind of rejected me. Disney became like that woman who broke your heart and tossed you aside. And today, I still can't watch Disney movies or go back to the parks at all. And I miss it. I feel like he rushed over that part, which is a pretty big statement, that you don't watch Disney movies. He just said it. Or go to the park. I don't. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Any park? Pretty heavy. I can't go back to the parks. Which which sucks because they're like my favorite place on earth, but I can't go there. Let's go. I just get I get sad, dude. I get like depressed. This is so f-ing stupid, but I know. But it, it's weird. It's like oh. it's like looking at a picture of that girl that broke up with you, and you still can't look at it. It's like oh, you I mean know this it girl? Dumb. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm glad my pain is so amusing to you guys. So there was no way making a list like this that couldn't include a Disney movie for me. In the same way Mr. Darling has a deep yearning to go back to Neverland, I hope I get to go back to Disney one day and reinvigorate that boy in me that never really grew up. Hope so too, Lance. What will it take for you to go back to Disney? I kind of want to like kidnap you and take take me down there. I'm not sure how we'd get through the the Um, entry style. It'd be hard. Well, you have wristbands now and you just scan it. I'd I'd have to get a job there. I'd have to work there full time again. Okay. So let's say if you were married and had kids and you didn't get a job there, but life is going well, you like your job. Let's say you're doing podcasting full time. We get this as a as a profession. Would you go? It's looking more likely at that point. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I, w- I wouldn't take kids there. 
Oh, I <laughs> that's not what Disney's for. <laughs> Let me say for the record, I know how stupid this sounds. No, I don't think it sounds stupid. I do. It doesn't it's sound just, stupid to us. But yeah, I mean, how many people? Yeah. How many people are upset by Disney? I mean, come on, like, like would be. You might be surprised. Yeah. yeah, maybe I would. If you're also upset by Disney, write in the, on, on Twitter. Go to or our Twitter, Twitter feed at Fat About Film. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like uh, I mean, this and this sounds really depressing, but like that was the last time in my life I was like genuinely, truly, just blissfully happy was when I was there. Mm. And ever since then, it's been like I don't know. It, it was like a time in my life where just like there was nothing but possibility and like anything could could happen and then like that kind of went away. We need Those were like there. the years that he didn't hang out with us at all. Yeah. That well, was a big part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't see us. I didn't have any douche <laughs> nozzles <laughs> holding me down. You know Apparently what this anything is, couldn't happen. Well, you know what this is? <laughs> yeah. Is you're like Robin Williams in Hook and you're going to go back one day. Yeah. When yeah. you're like old and hairy and gross. And have a food fight. Or like me. <laughs> or, like, or, or like you currently. <laughs> I hope so. I really do. I mean, I, I've tried, and it's it's uh it's been a tough. It it has been one of the defining things in my life. Oddly enough, as crazy as that sounds, I don't mm. think it's well. I, well, I can't I don't know, it just, we've heard it, it just so many feels times, dumb. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, so oh, go ahead. okay, no, 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 yeah. no, no. So, like, I know you love Alice in Wonderland. I Have do. you watched that again in the last fifteen years? Mm-mm. I haven't watched it in a while. Mm. It's, it's hard for me to pick a Disney movie now to like cover for the show because I can't watch them. Mm-hmm. I just can't watch him. Peter Pan has always been one of my favorite concepts and favorite stories, but none of the iterations of it have I loved. Even the original one? Even this one? Yeah, even this one. And and, and I can't quite figure it out. I think it's more like, it's not, it's the concept that I love, not the actual story. Like by the time they get to Neverland, it's kind of this episodic type of thing where it's just not as interesting to me, but I love the idea of like, you know, this eternal boy and the flying and the pixie dust and the, the world and the shadow and you just all that kind of stuff happy thoughts and yeah i love happy stuff i think would you say let's say it this way the elements are stronger than the story right yeah yeah, it's got so many great now i've never read the book i would love to go back the book i don't know how it compares yeah yeah um we have like four copies i think that's a fair criticism of it because if you ask somebody to tell you the story of peter pan (laughs) right nobody can really tell you what happens in it everybody can say tinkerbell peter pan the lost boys wendy darling like everybody knows all the characters Mm -hmm. and the people in it but nobody can really tell you a to z what happens in it yeah how did this one do in the box office did it get panned and just kind of peter out <laughs> I, did you write he, that down as no. soon as he started that i That's knew good. that wasn't Harry because i knew he, he didn't care about the box office like why would jordan care about the box office all right give me number two number two it's reflecting upon my entry into adulthood and relationships and family and uh my choice is the born identity it's when i was secretly recruited into a super agent <laughs> so are you gonna do that on every segment I got three of them. <laughs> Actually, my real number two. Three more? This is not a joke, is my big fat Greek wedding. <laughs> Gosh, Gibby, are you going to do that every time? <laughs> yeah, he's serious this time. Uh, wow. So, uh, from 2002, the film written by and starring Nia Vardalos as Tula Portacocolis. Nope. <laughs> She's a 30-year-old Excuse Greek. You. Yeah. Tula. Bless you. Whatever the correct joke is there. Tula is a 30-year-old Greek woman who has never really dated anyone, never fallen in love, but then falls in love with a non-Greek and struggles to get her family to accept him while she comes to terms with her family and her heritage. I got that off of IMDb. Good. Well, was she Sigma Kappa? Or right up there. No, Tridel. she's actually a Greek lady. So lambda, many of lambda, you, are lambda. Here, you may, you may <laughs> be sitting there thinking, why, why, is, why is he picking this movie when I am neither A, a woman, or two, a Greek? <laughs> a or two. I think Greek is... 
That's a good, that's a good question. question. Uh, Greek. It's, it's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I hate this topic. Let's move on. <laughs> Is your wife Greek? No. So so hmm. here's here's where here's where it speaks to me a little bit. So it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that I actually dated somebody for more than six hours. <laughs> That's just, this, is, this is a true story. That raises more questions than answers. <laughs> so the, the closest I'd ever gotten to a relationship prior to this was in college. I'd been talking with a girl. We went out to eat dinner one night before Wednesday night church. Was this another date that you got by tricking people into entering a competition for the <laughs> movie reviews? Yeah. This, this is legitimate. Tricking, tricking. Hey, let's go out and eat. We'd been out one or two times before. Tricking people into your van. So, so we went out to... <laughs> Come on in, I got some candy. <laughs> It's right behind me. It's right behind the duct tape. <laughs> so uh, I went out with this girl. We we had dinner. We discussed her. Like, yeah, let's start dating. And she had just recently broken up with somebody. So we went to church. And then I yeah, went back to my room. they only dated for six hours? No, they dated for She was coming months. off a previous She's relationship <laughs> three <laughs> hours earlier. <laughs> She's actually married to this guy again. So that tells you how this goes. I got back to my room. Then two hours later, she calls. And she says, you know, I just don't think I can really be dating somebody now. So man. when I was 25, I invited this cute young girl that I worked with to a Coldplay concert. We immediately hit it off and fell in love very soon after. So I kind of identified with the whole not beating somebody until slightly later in life, or not having even dated anybody before I'm in, that. I'm impressed that you weren't too yellow to ask her out. <laughs> you know, God put a smile upon my face that night. That's a Coldplay song. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh. Oh. There you go. What and, and I can't imagine my life without Crystal now, but, but she was also unexpected at that point because I'd almost kind of, I'd never dated anybody and I didn't really give up on love, but I had went to college specifically to find a wife. Hmm. And I even stayed an extra year and that didn't help. Is that what you majored in? Yes, wife making. <laughs> <laughs> and I also lived with my parents when I was 20, much like Tula in the movie. Hmm. Uh, so, so I identified with that part. And the other part that I identify with is that the huge family getting all up in your business. So my, I've got a huge family now. My my dad remarried uh, a couple years after my mom passed away, and we were lucky. We got blessed with a big family. But it went from three of us to 36 of us now when we're out. No, not, not in my immediate family, but in the wow. uncles and cousins. So I identify with the, just the big family and just how chaotic it is trying to get anything done and how everybody in your family thinks they know what's best for you. They just got to give you space to learn what's best for yourself. I like to imagine this segment's about to get really angry. Yeah. <laughs> they like, think they know. They don't know <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure nobody here has seen it, nor do I want you guys to even uh, see it. Ah, everybody's seen it. Not true. Yeah, I've, oh, wow. I've seen this. I was forced to watch this by a woman. <laughs> uh, and I saw it on my own volition. <laughs> well, Nothing surprising about nope, that. Not at all. <laughs> what might surprise you, I really enjoyed this movie. Oh, really? I was stunned, yeah. It's a fun movie. Uh, it is. It's it's really impressive, and it's kind of a fun take on Greek culture. Her family's hilarious. Like they got a lot of great characters there. It's extremely well-written. And this film was kind of famous for becoming sort of a cult classic. It got released in theaters and it, it started making progressively more money every week. It was kind of a studio darling. It uh, yeah, it's an amazing success story. It never got to number one, I believe, right at the box office, yeah. but went on to make two hundred and forty-one million dollars until seeing That's this. Amazing. Crazy. Until they made it for two hundred thirty. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Lots of special effects. Until seeing yep. this past year, Big Fat Greek Wedding was the highest-grossing movie ever to not hit number one at the box yeah. office. Five wow. million dollar budget made three hundred sixty-eight million, and it just kept. Kept going. I yeah, remember, week, yeah. remember after weekend, it kept. 
I was, and, and, and you understand why. But it got great word of mouth, and it did because it's a really quality movie. It is. Uh, it's a true it, word of mouth movie. Yeah, what makes it so great is it's, I mean, it's kind of like Office Space, where it's this world that you're not used to. Well, I guess Office yeah, Space, you're used yeah. to it, <clears throat> that she so pinpoints, and you're like, you know this is a real person coming from a real experience that is sharing her story. And actually, the filmmaker Nia... Vardalos. Vardalos. Uh, it was a one-woman show, mm-hmm. which I believe Tom Hanks' wife went to, came back to Tom Hanks, her husband. Is there anything he can't do? <laughs> <laughs> he could play a Greek woman. Yeah. I mean, nobody could have married somebody better who <laughs> went to see that one woman show. He was the best at that. Yeah. Told Tom Hanks about it. He came back to see it and decided to produce this as a film. And well, the rest was history. This opened in the summer of 2002, like just on some small screen in August. And it stayed at our theater for nine months. Yeah. Wow. Like it was on one screen for nine months and it didn't leave. It's, it's people the one, kept going to see it. It's happen. the one movie, if you put it on a graph, like it just goes the opposite direction of every yeah. other movie ever. I mean, everything yeah. else goes down downhill this went just kept going up and after that nine months it had it had a baby (laughs) called my big fat greek wedding tv show and it was canceled after three episodes or so well i gotta say i really wish i had watched this movie instead of hudson's next pick (laughs) here we go really Segway. Deep down, I am a romantic. Well, not even deep down. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's yeah. that deep much at all. on the surface. I'm yeah. pretty much wear my romanticism on my sleeve. Yeah, I can see it. Uh, quite literally, even two of the three tattoos on my arm have the word love in them, and the third is a little girl in a fawn. We may need to take a vomit break real quick. <laughs> this is from a man who wears women's clothing, by the way. He's telling you. He, want, he wants to vomit over you. Yes. <laughs> So I've always longed for the kind of romance we find in the movies. Couples who, against all odds, overcome adversity to find each other, fight for each other, and live happily ever after. And for the most part of my 20s, this is how I lived. Uh, We got into it a little bit on a romantic movies episode, but at some point I had to face the truth that maybe movie love isn't real life. And that's exactly what 500 Days of Summer is about. Hmm. Uh, It's really a brilliantly written film, jumping throughout time, telling the story of Tom, a greeting card writer, a job that only exists in the movies, I think, as he falls for his co-worker Summer in the near... No, I think it exists in real life, because somebody has to write greeting cards at some point. No, robots. One computers. (laughs) The narrator of this film will fill us in on the rest. The boy, Tom Hansen of Margate, New Jersey, grew up believing that he'd never truly be happy until the day he met the one... This belief stemmed from early exposure to sad British pop music and a total misreading of the movie The Graduate. The girl, Summer Finn of Shinnecock, Michigan, did not share this belief. Since the disintegration of her parents' marriage, she'd only loved two things. The first was her long, dark hair. The second was how easily she could cut it off and feel nothing. Tom meets Summer on January 8th. He knows almost immediately she's who he's been searching for. This is a story of boy meets girl. But you should know up front, this is not a love story. And the narrator is correct. No, the narrator is This is not a love story, and it drives me crazy when people watch this movie and complain that Tom and Summer don't end up together because they miss the entire point of the movie. He's talking about you. Oh, no. No, You aren't pulling from them together. No, I am not a shipper of Tom and Summer. He's not talking about you. (laughs) 
Um, see, I spent my teenage years and most of my 20s just like Tom, believing I'd never be happy until I found the one. Because magic, miracles, serendipity, just like the movies. But I found myself hurt over and over and over again, and I could never understand because against all odds, we overcome adversity to find each other, fight for each other, and live happily ever after, right? Tom has a great monologue during one of his low points in the film where he attacks the greeting card world we live in. It's, it's these cards. The movies and the pop songs, they're to blame for our lives. And the heartache, everything. And we're responsible. I'm responsible. I think we do a bad thing here. People should be able to say how they feel. How they really feel, not, you know, some words that some strangers put in their mouths. Words like love. That don't mean anything. But ultimately, Tom learns the same lesson that took me so long to learn, that until you become the person you want to marry, you will never find the person you want to marry. He goes through a personal transformation and learns to be okay with himself, as I did as well, embracing who I was, where I was in life. But it's also not a cynical anti-romance movie either, for in the end, Tom finds a glimmer of hope and possibility with a girl named Autumn. Uh, even Summer tells him... Spoiler <sighs> alert. Oh. You were right. It just wasn't me you were right about. Uh, and two years ago, I married my own Autumn. Well, her name's not Autumn. It's Afton, yeah, but close enough. Close. I mean, could that have gotten any more obnoxious <laughs> than to my have her name be... Oh, no, 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 no. Your review's fine. <laughs> That's clever. Uh, oh, are we, are we about to have five I mean, it's minutes just, of Jordan It's just a play on words. It's just a... But in that lies why this movie was so aggravating to me. Which is? I agree with the sentiment that it's trying to say. that, And in that monologue, I, like, I totally agree with that. And I'd never seen this movie before three days ago. I never wanted to see it because I knew that they fell in love over a love of the Smiths, which is a very oh, difficult terrible. thing for me to swallow because yeah. um, I love sad British pop music. The sentiment of the movie about how this fate thing and, and, and what you believed in in your 20s that I am so glad that you don't really yeah. believe in anymore. I felt like at the end, they totally just turned it back around and, and made you feel like that is real. Well, it, to me, it rides that line that it, it, it strips all that away, but it also... And to me, it's just, it's my personality. Like, yes, I don't believe in that anymore, but I want to, you know right. what I mean? But and I felt like that's what the movie was doing. Right, so the, the movie to me was saying, it's not this girl, it's the next one. <laughs> and that to me is just as damaging and terrible but a thing to do. it did it in a way that you knew nothing about the next girl. So maybe, maybe it was right. the next girl. And maybe he meets a girl named Winter <laughs> sure. 500 days after that. But, it, but it's just really <laughs> but frustrating. But you don't know, yeah. A couple of comments on this movie. I, first off, you haven't really talked about the storytelling device, which is really what is it's known for. Right. Which is where we literally just jump around in time from day two I mentioned to it a day. Bit. Did yep. you mention it? I he, just missed it. Did. Okay. Uh, I, I really liked that. Yeah. I, I thought it was very creative. And I think what I loved about it was it was congruent with how you think back on relationships. You don't right. think back of a relationship in chronological order. You think about back to day 10 where it was awesome and yeah. then day 30 where it sucked. And you kind of jump around in time. And I really love that. I thought it actually wasn't just a gimmick. I thought it sure. actually had a purpose. Yeah, I thought that was um, cool. I, I had a really interesting experience mm. seeing this movie. I went to see it with a girl that I had had kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with. And, and at the time I we went to see it, I was very bitter and angry. And this film infuriated me because I thought that the girl <laughs> kind of like played him the whole time. Mm -hmm. And it really, I, yeah. I, I left the theater. And I, I, it was weird. I liked the movie, but I was so angry when I left the theater. And because I was with a girl who I thought had done that to me a little bit, we went into a restaurant and got in a huge blow-up fight <laughs> afterwards in a P.F. Chang's. <laughs> and she got up and walked out wow. of the restaurant. And 
And the bad part was we'd ridden together. Ooh. So we then had to, she forgot, I think she forgot she'd ridden with me when she walked out of the restaurant. <laughs> so on the she way back to my car, I saw her see her sitting on a bench. I'm like, all right, let's go. We didn't say a word 30 minutes in the oh, car. Geez. We had to drive back. Wow. Didn't Long, say a word to each longer other. than most of Gibby's relationships. Yeah. <laughs> I see both of your points. I, I loved it. I get the, I get the negativity towards it too. I think it's like both points of view are valid and I can understand why someone would love or hate this film. I, I guess I, I expected it to turn a rom-com on its head and to me it hit all the same notes. They just didn't end up together. Really? Yeah. Huh. I felt like it did turn to rom-com on its head. Yeah, I agree. But you're right, Lance. The, the big selling point of this movie is all the kind of... There's there's more than just that device. There's a whole mm-hmm. lot of kind of storytelling and unique things that they do throughout of it that's, that's really a lot of fun. We are moving on to Jordan, number one. Just imagine a world where you will hold your entire, entire future, future in the, in the palm, palm of, of your, your hand. hand. When a tiny glowing crystal will guide you through an existence in which each day is more wonderful than the last. Where it will be possible for you to obtain the fulfillment of every fantasy, the satisfaction of every vanity, the absolute attainment of every wish. But in the 23rd century, life lasts 30 years. Not one day less, not one day more. When the crystal in the palm of your hand flashes its final message, your time is up. But there are a few rebels who run in search of sanctuary. The 23rd century will be here sooner than you think. Coming this summer, Logan's Run. Sure, you can argue that I don't live in the 23rd century, nor do I live only for pleasure. You could make that argument. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see you (laughs) try. One could. And life doesn't literally end at 30. However, allegorically speaking, this seems like a fairly apt portrayal. Mm. The velvet gold mine of my 20s promised pleasure and freedom, but with a stop date, a deadline. For many, that happens around the age of 30. I was married at 28 and conceived child number one. Right at 30. A common belief about parenting is that you give up and sacrifice your life for your children. To give them safety and stability, to invest yourself wholly and completely into them, and transfer your hopes and dreams and goals and aspirations onto them. Around this time, when Lily was pregnant with Letty, I was faced with some difficult decisions. I was a visual artist and was just beginning to make my first narrative short film with the men at this table with me. I was a musician, still traveling to play from time to time. I was also traveling to photograph bands on the West Coast or vineyards in France, but none of it made me any money and therefore the polar opposite of quote unquote stability. So with a child on the way, what was I to do? Stay the course and pursue creative pursuits as my passion and livelihood or buckle down, get a real job and give my kids what the societal norms tell me to do. Whatever did you do, Jordan? Renew! It's a mystery. Yes, renew. Uh, It was at this moment that I found a quote by influential Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung about the raising of children. Were you walking around looking for quotes? Yeah, I was walking around like, you know. Barnes and Noble, quote book. And I quote, Nothing has a stronger influence psychologically on their environment and especially on their children than the unlived life of the parent. It's not Hmm. that I particularly relate to Logan or any of the other characters. Logan is a Sandman, which means he's an enforcer of the age 30 rule. He hunts down and kills runners, those who try to avoid the renewal at age 30, a process that makes way for the next generation. Some things happen... (laughs) And Logan becomes a runner himself, running with a young woman named Jessica to find Sanctuary, a place where successful runners live. Can I point out that this is a very short-sighted society? Like, are, oh. are the people hunting there so like, wait, I'm going to turn 30 one day. Does this catch everyone by surprise? Well, they, they think that they're going to be renewed into oh. another. Yeah, it's, like, it's why it's would like, you want to get it's, old? It's praised that you yeah. 
Yeah. It's what well, you want to do. It's what you want to do. You get to do it all over again. Instead, it's the world that I relate to. The giant shopping mall of existence and the escape from it. The search for more. The search for aging awesomely. In Logan's run, he finds new promise, new adventures, more outside the system than could ever be found in it. This is not, however, a pursuit of more hedonism and irresponsibility, but a fulfilling and adventurous life as an extension of the passions and pursuits of my youth fully and completely with, not just for, my wife and my children. After all, I'm still me just older. The most beautiful part to me is less about my present run from the status quo, but that there is no sanctuary, that it doesn't exist. It's another lie, just like renewal, that there is no safety or stability, only adventure in the unknown, scary and exciting, a parent's life just waiting to be lived. So I stand with Logan on the balcony and yell, you don't have to die. Well, no one has to die at 30. You can live. 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 And grow old. I've seen it. Uh, Logan's Run is a funny movie to me because it represents this time of 70s future movies where it was like this Buck Rogers thing mm-hmm. where it was really ironic because it was supposed to be the future but it looked way older than the present. <laughs> and always, I never really knew what to do with that in my head. It was kind of like how like Tomorrowland was in Disney before they redid it yeah. years ago. And you'd go and you're like, this is kind of like the past. <laughs> Yesterday land. Yeah. Well, the, this came out a year before Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Star Wars changed everything. Yeah. That's what you Actually, had to say you about would it? Think it? you would think that... that 2001 would change everything. You think they'd step up their game after that yeah. movie? It's like they really regressed yeah. after 2001. Yeah, That's a it was great the, point. It was the 70s though. Well, I think they were trying to match it, but they couldn't match. Everybody how was in, awesome. It looked. Everybody was in Vietnam. I watched this fairly recently. I think maybe because of you. Thank yeah, you told me to watch I, it. I love this movie. Um, That's why I picked it. Yeah, it was fine. I think this is a movie that I mean I haven't seen this movie in a long time and it's probably a movie I shouldn't have watched as a child. It's probably there, way better there was, as a child. There's a different uh, standard of what could be shown in a PG movie in 1976 <laughs> and what can be shown in a PG oh, movie they, in they actually, 2000. They cut out a ton of stuff to make it PG because the MPAA I mean, really wanted it to be not what's, PG. Yeah, what's looking at the parents' guide is insane. In theory, this is a great idea for a movie mm. and I think it could be a great movie. I'm just not sure. It, it this does version feel like it's Run been. Begging to be a remake. Lance, number one. There's no film that means more to me personally than Steven Spielberg's 1982 masterpiece, E.T., The Extraterrestrial. I get asked sometimes what my favorite film of all time is, and I think people knowing how pretentious I can be when it comes to movies expect me to say some obscure foreign movie no one has ever heard of. But the answer is E.T., and it's because it's a film that has grown up with me and come to mean different things as I revisit it throughout my life. It's never the same movie when I rewatch it, and it's an incredibly special film to me. The story is well known. An alien is stranded on Earth and wanders into a suburban town where he befriends Elliot, a middle child and a broken family who is struggling with his own loneliness. The two form an immediate bond and Elliot helps E.T. find a way to get back home. There are a few films with more iconic scenes and moments. Reese's Pieces, throwing a baseball in a shed and watching it get thrown right back out. E.T.'s glowing finger with its healing power and of course, flying bikes. E.T. was my first movie at the drive-in theater, which is a very special memory for me and one of the more impactful <laughs> events of my childhood. The last movie at the drive-in yeah, theater? But with no yeah, sound, right? Probably, yeah. I think that was the in the first two minutes of our first episode that's right. We talked about this. Uh, watching it as a child, E.T. taught me about the wonder of film and the magic that movies can communicate. As I got older and dealt with the normal anxiety all kids and teenagers deal with, I often found solace in music. But I was a little weird. I didn't turn to the normal hard rock and rambunctious music of Jordan-type children. <laughs> it's okay. I turned to... Film scores, and E.T. is my favorite film score of all time, considered gr- so great that Spielberg began to direct scenes around John Williams' legendary score instead of the other way around. Mm-hmm. 
As I grew out of my teenage years, my parents got a divorce. And revisiting the film again and seeing interviews with Spielberg, I made a very unexpected discovery. E.T. is a film about divorce. That aspect of the film has always been lost on me when I was younger. But Elliot's parents have gone through a divorce, and he's dealing with the isolation that divorce always brings. This was an intentional expression of Spielberg's own life as he dealt with his parents' divorce at a young age. And E.T. was his way of dealing with those still raw emotions. And in that regard, the film became even, became even more personal for me. E.T. Mm. does something so incredibly rare, which is to do sentimentality well. When a film can accomplish that, it quickly becomes a great film. And so many films try and fail at this. It's what defined Spielberg's early career and what made him the legend he's become. Because it's such a difficult thing to pull off, and yet he did it over and over again. E.T. is a film that is so easy to make an emotional connection with. It doesn't, it doesn't ask you to come to it. It comes to you and does all the work for you. My love of film, my love of the power of film as a medium, and the emotional impact it can have on those who are willing to open themselves up to it, the marriage of image and music, and the themes that hit so close to home for me personally, all combine to make this a film that probably solidified my love of movies more than any other. Yeah, this movie's pretty remarkable. I don't remember like loving this as a kid and, and watching mm. it all the time, but I remember like having the memories of it, you know, that kind of thing, you know? Revisiting it as an adult, it's just still that it's just t- immediately takes you back to that magical world of it's everything got, you believed in. Yeah, it's got possible this palpable like the forest and the fir trees and the yeah. dark and the moon and like it creates this environment that just it's like you can feel it as you're watching the film. It just it created some emotion me that I just have so rarely have ever seen in a film. So this is a film that I loved as a kid. If, if you had to, if you'd asked 15 year old Kyle what your favorite movie is, mm-hmm. it would either be E.T. or Star Wars. Oh. Uh, and I was so pumped <laughs> to nerd. see the re-release about 13 years ago, mm-hmm. 2002. <laughs> and I, so bad. Yeah, and I went and watched it, and I, you know, I was expecting to be like bawling by the end and stuff, and it didn't affect me like that so much as an adult. But I do say it, it still does affect. You, you wonder how it would affect a younger generation now. Mm-hmm. And I watched it a couple years ago with my youngest brother, who was probably nine or ten at the time, and he just loved it. I mean, he was just as enraptured at it as nine or ten as I was, mm-hmm. and I was nine or ten. It is. So pretty, there's something pure about it. That, but it's also really heavy. Like I remember being scared as a kid. Like, yeah, that scary, scene where that where where like he's almost dying. Yeah, and where the I think guys that's why I show up. And yeah. it, it scared a lot of kids. There are scenes that kids still talk about, like when he when he runs into him in those like cornfields or whatever, mm-hmm. where he et freaks out. That scared the hell out of me as a kid. But I think that's also why kids love it. It, it does that thing a lot of eighties movies did, where it didn't talk down to kids. It treated them with like a certain degree of respect, and it didn't sugarcoat things for them. Yeah, it, it threw them right into the mess and and let them work their way out of it. That's probably it. Now, this is a film... I mean, this is a movie... I could do a whole episode about this movie. I love this movie so much, and it means so much to me. Yeah, it's one of those movies that I've kind of... I've almost picked it a couple of other times, and I keep have kind of wanted to save it. And honestly, I'll probably pick it again at some point so we can really delve into the movie more, because this is really more about my relationship with it. But so many interesting things about this movie and so much that could be said about it. The really weird scene in this movie where he's at school and E.T.'s at home watching old movies, and like love the frogs it. get loose, and he like grabs that girl and does the spin and stuff. Yeah. I yeah. guess that's... It's from weird describing it well, there's so there's so it's much so that, weird but it's such a cool it's so great how they're kind of living vicariously through each other and how tight that relationship gets where what et is experiencing is what elliot's experiencing and he's helping elliot live and there's a lot there were so many interesting directorial decisions spielberg made when making this where so for example we only see a couple of adults faces throughout this whole movie mm-hmm. that the film yeah. is shot at a child at a child's eyeline mm-hmm. 
And that that there's such an impact to that when you watch it now, where they're kind of living living subservient and kind of like in an adult world, but we don't really see the adults. So like we're 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 totally living in a child's world and only looking at things through their eyes. And just it's little touches like that that Spielberg was so good at. Give me number one. So we're getting down here to the end, and this is going to be a really different segment than any segment we've ever done. This will be very different yes. because because my number one pick is the Hunger Games. It's about the time that I killed a bunch of kids. Holy sh. It somehow it never stops. Gets I just less wanted funny to get you guys and really more funny for Gibby. Okay, yeah, it's harder every time. <laughs> All right, my my actual number one. I'm not really even sure how to explain this, but it's uh, when I think of the last ten to twelve years of my life, this movie permeates it. So sensibly, my number one pick is a small independent film called Cracker Jack. If you are to look it up on IMDb, which I just did, it has the writers, it has Kyle Gibson, Lance Hurd, and Hudson Phillips on it. Which oh I don't my even gosh, that's us. us! Did we write this? I believe we did. Thanks a lot, guys. Sort of. Not really. We did not no. write Cracker Jack. So Cracker Jack's a film that was made marginally based on a screenplay that Lance and Hudson and I wrote 10 to 11 years ago called Church League. So that's what I want to talk about. Uh, we should say that this is a milestone on the podcast because this is the first movie we'll be talking about that none of us have seen. <laughs> yes. None <laughs> I, of us have seen Cracker I Jack. I almost watched it the other day. Really? <laughs> yeah. So we wrote the script and then um, we had a good bit of attention attention from it. So we it was optioned by Lionsgate Films. Writer's Strike happened. Uh, Lionsgate dropped it. A local Atlanta production company picked it up and they made the film under a different title and a different script different story. a different story and a different everything and it was called Cracker Jack and it was released in 2013 so essentially what happened was they purchased the script from us we thought that we would kind of be involved in a rewrite and be really involved in the making of the film we felt like we had this great idea that could have been this huge vehicle and we thought that's what they wanted and instead they kept trying to turn it into this really low budget small not very funny thing yeah and it just never made sense to us well they had an idea of who they wanted to be in right. it which was very different than who we thought we should <laughs> right. be in it and so that dictated a lot of things it just wasn't right for us as right. writers right. And they uh, and they also wanted to make it uh, so ours was very broad and i mean we we make fun of church in it quite a bit and then i think that they couldn't really see a market in that and then some of some ways they wanted us to turn it more into like a christian vehicle yeah um which was not really what our intention like was like the pope mobile yeah <laughs> <laughs> George's proud of that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of him for that one. That was great. Uh, you know, I, I, for me, I mean, I, I'd have to say this too. As much as I learned from it, 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 it was a it was a pretty negative experience for me. In that, I, I kind of ever since then haven't had as much interest in screenwriting as much. I mean, there there there, there are things about it I still love, but it was a very it was a, it was a very hard time looking back on it for me personally. And I think, I mean, you, you guys too, like, I mean, maybe you disagree yeah. with me, but I, I look at it as getting a taste of this world that wasn't what I wanted it to be yeah. and being very disappointed by it. And after that, just kind of going, I don't think I want to do this so much anymore. I, it, like it really made me not want to write screenplays so much anymore. Mm. I mean, my takeaway is a little more positive. I mean, it's just That's that. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what we've been doing ever since then, which is making stuff on our own and kind of, I mean, it sounds selfish when you say it at first that, you know, you want to take it all on your own hands and make it what it is because we're certainly collaborative um, oh, yeah. and reach out to a lot of people that we want to collaborate with but you know just not leaning on Hollywood not leaning on outside forces in order to get a movie made to be able to protect your voice and what we want to say because I feel like we have some important things to say and so I mean if anything it made me more motivated to, to make films but as a screenwriter you have to come to terms with the fact that you are among the most powerless groups in Hollywood mm. even though you are the source right. of so much creativity yeah. you have no power yeah. and people who think they know better than you that 
totally don't still get to do whatever they want with your property. And Michael really the, Bay. Yeah, Michael Bay. <laughs> Jerk. So uh, to any oh, mega producer out there that's no, a big fan of Four Friends Fight About Film, we're still willing to sell it. I'm turning this into a plug. It's weird. <laughs> And if you use coupon code for friends fight about film <laughs> to buy our script, twenty percent off. <laughs> All, All right. right, that's it. That's it. We wrapped it up. Ooh, we got personal. Show. We survived. We didn't cry much. Mm-mm. All right, uh, what are you guys excited about this week? Here's what I'm excited about, and we've touched on this before in excited abouts. But Lance just talked a lot about his disapproval of the Hollywood system and and his being discouraged from screenwriting. But it just so happens that a short film that Lance screen wrote oh, is, yeah. is on the festival circuit right now. Right As we now. speak. It's uh, traveling on the circuit right now. It is. Uh, Going full steam. Hudson uh, produced it and I directed it mm-hmm. and Gibby, Gibby, worked Gibby on was it. there. Gibby was there, I was there when it happened. Yeah, he's an extra uh, and did among, some other things. Other it was really things. helpful. I brought coffee into places. Um, but <laughs> You did. But, you know, we're proud of it. And we're happy that some people are getting to see it. And it's playing at a pretty big festival coming up at the end of April. The Milledgeville, is that pretty big? Milledgeville Film Festival. It sounds like it's not big (laughs) because it's Milledgeville, Georgia. Uh, But it's a huge week-long film festival uh, where people come in from all all over the world. And uh, it's it's a big deal. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we will be there. We sure will. On uh, the Sunday, the last Sunday, (laughs) which I think our short plays in the very last (laughs) possible screening. They say save the best for last. That's right. And they did. And by they, I don't mean the Milledgeville Film Festival. I just mean other people (laughs) about other things. I had an excited about all written out that I was very excited about telling, oh, no. but I'm going to push it to next week. Oh, okay. Because today I saw the trailer for Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> yes, some Marvel movies have been bland. Some have been a decent time. None have been really flawless, but I love everything I've seen the director Taika Waititi do. I love this cast. I love the humor. Uh, and this seems to fall on the Guardians of the Galaxy side of the Marvel Universe as opposed to like the, you know, Captain America kind of Avenger side. It's big action adventure, outer space, and it just jumped up up to my most anticipated movie of the year. Wow. The little shorts they've done leading up to this, which is Thor and his roommate, like yeah, in uh, Australia or whatever, it's very funny. No, yeah. I, I do think this is going to be a Ragnarok and good time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rags no riches story. Here's what I'm excited about. Our very next episode that we're recording, our listener reviews. I'm excited because we get to watch a lot of movies. You guys have made some good suggestions, and uh, it's going to be fun. Woo! Uh, Next week. Woo! I'm excited I get to go to Chicago in a couple weeks. That'll be fun. Get some pizza. I will. Deep dish. And some dogs. dogs. Yes. Are you going to actually go into Chicago? Last time you didn't I'm get to. I'm going to try to. I didn't get to last time. And I'm try please to take a picture with that stupid reflective beam. Oh, that just for me. Oh, just for me. He didn't get to go into Chicago last time because he was watching Veep. Oh. Uh, do well, and sleeping. Uh, you know, that's why they call it Veep Town. You got to go to a, a restaurant and say your name is Abe Froman. They love it there. I bet they never heard of that. They never get that. That's a good episode. I should say you do. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, guys. We will see you next week. Woo! Peace. See you later. Au revoir. Well, well, greetings and salutations. This is Christian Slater. Let us know how your list differs at FightAboutFilm on Facebook and Twitter or email us at FightAboutFilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Uh, Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go gleam a cube. Pump up the volume, pump up the volume, pump up the volume, dance, dance. 